It's great to see you. Happy Bank Holiday weekend. You're the guys who didn't get away, clearly. <laughs> or not yet. Maybe you've enjoyed the sunshine. Bless you. It's all about quality, not quantity, isn't it? Um, it's just great to see you, and you're very welcome here. I wonder if you had the opportunity to win a hundred million pounds, what you'd do with it. Um, I will never have the opportunity because I've never played the lottery, but theoretically, if I had, what would I do with that money? Just turn to the person next to you and just tell them what comes to the top of your head. You won a whole heap of money. What would be the first two or three things that you would consider doing with it? Go for it. Just turn and tell the person next to you. So, uh, hands up. Who would give up their job? Okay. Great. Who would... uh... Oh, look. Let's look at this. Here's a a survey I cut out of a newspaper a little while ago. Asked what they would do if they won 101 million pounds. I don't know why 101. In the lottery, 74% of Britons said they would give up their jobs. Only 20% claimed they would continue working. 2% 2% would give none of their winnings to friends and family. 34% would give them up to 10 million. 19% between 10 and 20 million. 32% more than 20 million. That's interesting, isn't it? The average amount people would immediately spend on themselves is 2.4 million. And they'd also give 11 million to charity and invest 37 million. Isn't that interesting? We are... Um, in a series about generosity. Generosity means giving above and beyond what might be expected. And as Paul helped us to understand back at the start of this, we can only really be generous ourselves when we know and fully understand and embrace the Father's generosity to us. He was all in. He gave it all. And calls us to do the same. And I talked about Barnabas' example of living a lifestyle of fruitful generosity and investment in God's kingdom. I'm talking finances and time and energy. By the way, if you're visiting today or if you're not a believer, if you wouldn't call yourself a Christian, you've come to church today for the first time and you're thinking, oh, the church, they're always talking about money. Um, We're not always talking about money, just usually about once a year for three or four weeks. Um, So I'm sorry if you've chosen this week to come. Um, you, you, are more, you are more than welcome um, and please stay and listen to us talk about some of the things as well however it's really important that we do talk about money because it's such an important part of our lives and um, we've been within our generosity series we've then begun as a mini part of that series called seasons of generosity and last week Laura talked about autumn and how in the natural autumn is a season of change and transformation it's a season of harvest of celebrating God's provision for us of thankfulness and this week I want to look, move on and look at the season of winter and about how when resources become more scarce, when conditions get tougher, we can still avoid the temptation to hoard, that we, we try and keep soft hearts towards God and others in this area of how we handle our resources. So Laura reminded us that we're supposed to celebrate God's generosity to us. We're called to cultivate a whole lifestyle of generosity, deliberately choosing to be free and open-handed with our resources in a way that honours God and invests in others and invests in his kingdom. And maybe you're thinking, well, that's got nothing to do with the church or anyone else. To be honest, what I do with my money is my business. Maybe you're thinking that, but I can 
encourage you that this is actually one way in which the Bible is very clear and very countercultural. The truth is how we handle our resources is kind of like a window directly into our hearts. What we do with our money and our time shows what's important to us and ultimately actually what's in control of us. So our passions, our interests, our values, the things that, count, that we count as a high priority, the important things, that will be reflected in the time and the money that we spend. If you ever wanted to do an audit of your values or priorities, then you need no look, look no further than your bank statement or your calendar, your diary. Whatever we say is important to us, actually, what's, what's actually important to us will show up here. This is where we'll find the most accurate reflection of what's in our hearts. So you can hear me, Nigel, say that my family are really important to me, but you'll only know if that's true by looking at what I spend my money on and where I spend my time. You know, the time that I give to my children and the money that I give to my children. You know, mealtimes and lifts and help with homework and clothes and education and entertainment and gifts. You know, those of you who are parents will know all about that. You know, it shows up. The stuff that's important to you shows up in your diary and your bank statement. If I'm really mad about sport or music or art or fishing or bikes or cars or gardening or photography or cooking or fitness or whatever your hobbies are, then you'll find things in my diary and in my bank statement that reflect that. Maybe it's money on equipment. Maybe it's club membership. Maybe it's a regular time commitment. For example, I'm, I'm, always, I'm never free on a Thursday night in term time because I um, run a choir and that's when we meet. That's the thing that I love to do. And if I believe in the vision of this church and I want to play an active role in this community and see God's work here develop and grow, then I will be giving my time to be part of one of the teams that help make church happen here. I'll be prepared to come early once or maybe even twice a month and maybe even do a little bit of preparation so that we help this thing to happen smoothly. And I'll also be giving a portion of my money regularly as the Bible teaches and maybe going over and above that to give to some sort of special projects. I'll come back to that later. As Laura suggested last week, this kind of radical generosity reflects the heart of God. And as his followers, we want to fully play our part in his kingdom. I don't know about you, but I want to be somebody who is known more for what I give than what I receive. I want to be giving more than receiving. And the truth is, in a time of maybe autumn when there's a season of celebration and we've just had harvest and there's plenty coming in, that's kind of a little bit easier. And it's actually much harder to do that when resources become more scarce. You know, how many of you know that it's easier to be generous when you've just been paid as apart from when you're coming towards the end of the month? Think about the seasons in the year. It doesn't take long for that abundance of autumn to turn into the cold, dark days of winter when the trees die down and some species, excuse me, some species disappear altogether and relocate to warmer areas because they can't stand the cold. You know, for centuries, poets and artists have been representing winter as a time of discontent and a time of stagnation, even death. Actually, all of us experience seasons of winter in our lives when life is hard going. And we're faced with changes in employment or loss of earnings or relationship and family breakup or the loss of someone close to us. It's not a surprise that in those kind of tough times, generosity might become less of a priority. 
Because when times are tough, our natural tendency is to tighten the grip. Tighten, hold on tighter to what we've got. Clench our fists. Do up our belt tighter. We might need that stuff. We don't know what's going to happen. What's, we don't know what's coming next. But we do need to be careful we're not living from a place of fear. Now, I'm not advocating foolishness with our money. But God often uses these kinds of difficult times to shape us and to teach us things and to help us trust and to help us grow. Grow emotionally, spiritually and financially. And actually, winter isn't a season of decay and despair. Well, it's not entirely a season of decay and despair because in the middle of our actual winter, we have the seasons of Advent and Christmas, which is when we celebrate hope and light and God's intervention in a broken world by literally coming to the earth himself and making a generous provision for us, his sal- our salvation through his death on the cross. So we've sung it this morning. We've sung this line in that, in that song, You Are Stronger. We sang faithfulness, none can deny, through the storm and the fire, through the difficult times, you are faithful, you are stronger. And so if there was ever a season to reflect on the generosity of God and the generosity in our lives, it's winter. In the times when our natural temptation is not just to save, but to hoard, to hold on just in case. If there's ever a time to press into God and take steps of faith and allow him to prove just who he is, just what an extravagant, generous father he is, it's when things are difficult and when money's tight. I mean, it's all his money anyway. Psalm 24 in the Old Testament says, The earth is the Lord's and everything in it. It all belongs to him. If you want a New Testament reference, James chapter 1, verse 17 says, Every good and perfect gift comes from God above. So the real question is not, How much of my money can I afford to give to God? The real question is, How much of God's money can I afford to keep for myself? And my family. And God even says on this one issue in the Bible, you can test me in this. Now God isn't really up to being tested on many issues, but on this one he is. Malachi 3 verse 10. It says, bring the whole tithe into the storehouse that there might be food in my house. Test me in this, says the Lord Almighty, and see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that there will be not room enough to store it. If you... If you give what you need to give, God says, you can test me and I will bless you. Now, some people have twisted that to say, I will bless you with money. And maybe he will. But that isn't what that's saying. It's just saying, I will bless you. And there are all kinds of blessings and there are all kinds of provision. And thank you, by the way, Laura already mentioned this, but thank you for sharing some wonderful stories last week. Uh, We had the privilege of reading through them all. And I'm just going to read one of them to you, which is a story about the extravagant generosity of God that somebody wrote up. Um, I'm just going to read it as they wrote it. It's a long story that I felt over the last couple of weeks I should have shared, but didn't, so today was a nudge from God. Before we had children and could afford long-haul holidays, as I was booking our flights, there was an option to upgrade to a premium cabin. But I couldn't decide if it was a good use of money, although a more comfortable 10-hour flight was very appealing. I decided not to upgrade in the end as I couldn't justify the expense. And a couple of days later, we were approached by someone from our church asking for a donation for a youth project for the exact amount that the flight upgrade would have cost. So we decided to give this donation, brackets, not with a completely cheerful (laughs) attitude, but anyway, we felt it was the right thing to do. 
When our holiday departure came, we came to the airport check-in to find they didn't have two seats together left, and so we were given a free upgrade. (laughs) We just laughed. Because God had a plan, and he knew our plans and desires, and he is extravagant in his blessings, and he gives us above and beyond our needs. And we were also pleased that we hadn't spent the money on the flight, but it was used for a better cause. Isn't that a great story? And thank you for all of you who put in stories about healing and what God is doing. And, you know, let's hear some more. If you think that you've got, if we would love to hear what God is doing. We don't often always get to hear. So just some questions to ponder. Laura, being a teacher, kind of introduced the whole, oh, that was my, I, sorry, that was my little thing to demonstrate that story, my little graphic that I found. Um, Laura, being a teacher last week, said there was a little bit of in, interactive bit, and I thought I'll copy that and do the same. I used to be a teacher. So at this point, you can do this on your own or you can turn to the person next to you and chat about it, whatever you feel most comfortable. But I'm just going to give you a couple of minutes uh, to, to just reflect on these questions. When have, you, when have been your hardest times financially? And what has been or is your attitude to generosity in those times? And then there's a sort of follow-up question, which is, in times of austerity, how can a lifestyle of generosity set us free? from the captivity of money. Why don't you just turn to the person next to you or if you prefer, just sit on your own and have a think and a ponder. It depends if you're an internal or an external processor. And just take two or three minutes to uh, chat about that before we come back together and look at the Bible. Maybe you can put some music on for us, Pete, for a minute. Thank you. going to give you one more minute on that. Thank you. Why don't we move on and uh, hopefully that's just kind of opened up the whole topic for us. And and in that context, let's look at the Bible together. Um, I'm going to read a short passage from the book of Luke, Luke chapter 12. Um, If you have a Bible or a phone with a Bible on it, you might want to look it up. Um, Luke chapter 12 and verse 13 to 21. It's it's called the parable of the rich fool. And uh, I'm going to put the words up here, but it might be a bit small, so... Maybe you want to follow on 
someone in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. And Jesus replied, Man, who appointed me a judge or an arbiter between you? And then he said to them, Watch out. Be on your guard against all kinds of greed. Life does not consist in an abundance of possessions. And then he told them this parable. The ground of a certain rich man yielded an abundant harvest. He thought to himself, what shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. And then he said, this is what I'll do. I will tear down my barns and build bigger ones. Oh, did you just move it on for me already? Sorry, my apologies. There we go. I will tear down my barns. And build bigger ones. And there I will store my surplus grain. And I'll say to myself, you have plenty of grain laid up for many years. Take life easy. Eat, drink and be merry. And God said to him, you fool. This very night your life will be demanded from you. And then who will get what you've prepared for yourself? This is how it will be with whoever stores up things for themselves. But is not rich towards God. Jesus said, You may have heard this story before. The parable is about abundant harvest and having plenty of crops, but it definitely has some winter themes. So I've just got a few little questions here. What does this parable tell us about this man's attitude towards money and God? I wonder if you noticed how many eyes there were in the passage. Uh, It starts down here in verse 16, verse 17. Um, count them up with me. So the man thought to himself, what shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. Keeps going. Then he said, this is what I'll do. I will tear down my barns and build bigger ones in there. I will store up my surplus of grain. And I will say to myself, I missed out the mice. You have plenty of grain laid up for many years. Take it easy. That's eight times in about two or three verses that the man says either I or my. The man's focus is pretty clear in this story, isn't it? He seems to go further than simply saying, I'm just putting a little bit by. This is about hoarding. This is more than just wise saving. Okay, another question for this parable is, is Jesus saying that it's wrong to have wealth? And the answer is no, I don't think so. The Bible's very clear. The Bible never condones having a lot of money. It never says it's wrong to have wealth. Money's not wrong. Making money as long as it's done fairly isn't wrong. It doesn't, Jesus is not interested in whether we have a lot or a little. He's interested in our attitude to it. In our attitude to what we have. And so Jesus calls this man a rich fool. Why is he calling him a rich fool? You see, you'd think that providing for your future might in some senses be seen as a wise thing to do. But Jesus says, no, this guy's a fool. This guy's got the wrong idea about God and he's got the wrong idea about wealth. And actually, in biblical terms, the word fool, it kind of comes a lot, a number of times in the Old Testament and it really is used to describe somebody who turns their back on God. There's a famous verse in the Old Testament, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. So Jesus is saying, this guy's got it all wrong. What's for us a modern equivalent of tearing down And in quotes, I inserted what seemed like perfectly good barns. It seems like the man just tore them down in favor of building bigger ones. What's that for us? I mean, maybe one or two of us have barns that we're involved in, but this isn't necessarily as it applies to us about 
grain and barns, but what could it be about? What does it look like to hoard in this way? Is it, we're talking about saving over and above, saving for our future and then doing some more and then putting some more aside just in case, living out of fear or maybe even out of greed. What about the possessions we do spend our money on? We live in a culture, don't we, that often suggests that we need to upgrade. How many of you are due for an upgrade on your phone? You know, Time for an upgrade. Do you need an upgrade? Maybe you do. I'm not talking about ourselves, I'm talking about our phones. <laughs> I remember an early phone advert when the, I, I tried to look for it on um, YouTube, but I couldn't find it. But I, and I don't remember what it was, but it was one of these adverts where basically the, the sense of the advert was that the phones were all covered in, plastic, in paper bags because they were just really ashamed of themselves because they were old. They weren't the latest phone. Does anybody remember that advert or am I just dreaming it? Um, you know, that's, oh, you so last year. You know, technology firms really rely, don't they, on people's desire for the next thing. We've, we've invented the next thing. We've brought it out. Therefore, you need to have it. I don't know if you've ever heard this phrase, but I was taught it. Use it up, wear it out, make it do or do without. Use it up, wear it out, make it do or do without. It's not very cool, but it's quite kingdom. And like many parables, this story is working on a number of different levels because there really is some financial wisdom in there and some moral wisdom. But there's a deeper context to this story as well. Think about who Jesus is telling this story to and why he's telling it to them. Okay, Here's Tom Wright, who's a brilliant um, New Testament um, theologian. He says this about this story. The man who wanted Jesus to arbitrate in a property dispute with his brother was typical in his attitude. The attitude of many of Jesus' fellow Jews, the attitude that many of Jesus' fellow Jews took towards the holy land itself, their land. The land wasn't just where they happened to live. In the first century, as in the early 21st century, possession of the land was a vital Jewish symbol. Families clung to their inheritance for religious reasons as well as economic ones. And Jesus was known, wasn't he, for criticizing the religious and the Jewish authorities for the way that they misunderstood God and really misunderstood the heart of God. And here he is again, challenging their attitude to their land, pointing out that God was bringing a kingdom not just for the Jewish nation, but for every race and every place on earth. And Jesus is suggesting that just as Israel as a nation is like the man in the story, they're in danger of holding so tightly onto what's given them out of fear. You might say they were trying to hold on to God themselves or their version of him. We're not letting you have him. He's our God. Coming from a place of religion and fear and selfishness and greed. And in the very next passage, Jesus follows this up and he's teaching the disciples. And he says, so therefore I tell you, don't worry about what your life, about what you will eat or what your body or what you'll wear. For life is more than food and the body more than clothes. Consider the ravens. They don't sow or reap. They have no storeroom or barn, and yet God feeds them. And how much more valuable are you than the birds? Who of you, by worrying, can add a single hour to your life? Since you can't do this very little thing, why do you worry about the rest? Jesus is so countercultural. He's so countercultural. You can't hold on to this stuff, he's saying. Tom Wright, again, the kingdom of God at its heart. It's about God's sovereignty sweeping the world with love and power such that human beings, each made in God's image, 
each one loved dearly may relax and know that God is in control. How many of us know that God is in control and we can relax? We don't have to hold on to our stuff. It doesn't define us. God is in control. He is generous beyond measure. And so the message of this second section here on one hand is, you know what? You can relax and you can trust that God's got it. He's, he's, he's got you. He's got your back. He's a generous provider, just like any good father would be. And by the way, I haven't got time to tell you the stories, but I can testify to this in my own life. I've never not given away the first 10% of my income. I don't remember a time when I ever didn't do that. I've always tried to be generous over and above that. It's not even a discussion, actually, for us. It's automatic. It's just a standing order. I've never been without. Never been without. And on the other hand, Jesus has got a warning in this parable to watch out and be on your guard, he says, against all kinds of greed. Life, as it said at the beginning, does not consist in an abundance of possessions. I used to um, quite enjoy reading the Sunday papers. I used to find them quite relaxing. I never read the paper very much, but I'd buy one on Sunday because it would go, keep me going all week. But I found that the magazines and the lifestyle that was being portrayed in them was beginning to make me feel really cross and sad and like I was missing out. You know, there's a bit about travel and there's a bit about cars and there's a bit about gadgets and there's a bit about, you know, lifestyle. And I, is this anybody else's experience or is it just me? I find I had to, you know, there are the magazines that I'd occasionally buy when I was on holiday, um, and they're, I don't know what they're called, like gadget or new stuff or whatever it is. I don't, I don't know what it's called. Technology. And it's just one of these magazines where it just goes through, you know, all these, here's the latest watch, and here's the latest computer, and here's the latest phone, and it, oh, it's all shiny. I've, I found that they're just not helpful. I'm quite happy with what I've got until I start reading one of those things. <laughs> And so what do we do about this? Well, first of all, we figure out what our greatest possession is. What is your greatest possession? What is it? And then we figure out how close that is to our hearts and how we value it. Where is our treasure? Where are we invested? What's the most valuable thing we've got? And if it's a possession, great. If we have money stored up, do we know what it's for? And then we figure out if we really believe what we've sung this morning, which is that he is Lord of all. And actually, if the greatest possession we've got is something that we're holding on to tightly over here, and he's not the Lord of it, then perhaps we should think about what it means to be rich towards God. That's not me. No, it's not me. No worries. Get that if you need to. It's fine. Um, What does it mean to be rich towards God? (laughs) Everyone's looking. (laughs) No, it's me. (laughs) What does it mean to be rich towards God? Proverbs 19 says, whoever is generous to the poor lends to the Lord. So part of being rich towards God is being generous to his people. And I loved Laura's story last week about deliberately putting aside some money into a giving account so that they were ready to respond when a need arose or when God prompted them to. We're actually doing something like that as a church. We're creating a separate hardship or crisis fund so that when people are genuinely in need, we've got a way of helping them with a loan or a gift 
I'll give you more details about that and how you can get involved in it. But I love that. How do we plan for the future in a wise and godly way and keep our hearts right before God? Well, a friend of mine um, is called David Flowers, and he leads the Vineyard Church in Leeds. But all his life, he's also been a financial advisor. And he put together a series of videos for stewardship. And I just found one on the internet uh, when I was um, looking around this week. And it's just a very short video on hoarding versus saving and what the Bible has to say. So why don't you just watch this for a minute or two? There is a paradox, another paradox, a, a spectrum of understanding in the Bible between, on the one end, prudence and planning ahead, and on the other side, faith and living by faith. And I think both are expressed in the Bible, and there's a balance to be pursued. You've got the ant in Proverbs 6. Look to the ant, you sluggard, consider its ways and be wise. It saves in the summer, it harvests in the autumn for the winter. But then you've also got Jesus talking about the bird of the air. doesn't need to think about anything because his father provides. There's a bit of both. So when we're thinking about saving or not saving, planning for the future, the story of the farmer building up his silos of wheat for the future. The warning in that is not so much against saving, but it's against hoarding. And the distinction in my mind, saving is when you have a particular purpose in mind, hopefully a God-given purpose for which you're saving versus hoarding, which is about giving me security and identity and power and my safety coming from having savings rather than my safety coming from being a follower of Jesus. Charles Wesley is famously quoted as saying, uh, earn all you can, save all you can, give all you can, uh, which is mathematically challenging, but I think what he's saying is it's fine to earn and to uh, uh, get money coming in. It's good to save and to put money aside for the future and it's also really good to be generous and to give as much away as you can. And if you want more information you can look at uh, Stewardship's website uh, online and they've got some pretty good resources there. And so the advice, that, the advice there is to be wise and to also cultivate an attitude of generosity. And so as we're thinking about this issue, another question that might come up is, okay, Nigel, fair enough, so what are you saying about how much I should give to the church? And I just want to take just a few moments to talk about giving to the church and briefly unpack what the Bible says about what we should do about giving to the local church. If you've been around churches generally for a while, you've probably heard a common teaching that Christians should give 10% of their income to the church. I wonder if that's something that you've thought about or it's something that you do. Um, and so uh, the Old Testament talks about a system called tithing. Now, a tithe literally means a tenth. And that's where this idea comes from, originally from the Old Testament. But the tithing script system that's described in the Bible, in the Old Testament, doesn't really fit our culture today. It was designed specifically to meet the needs of the religious, the economic, and the political system of ancient Israel. So each of the 12, 12 tribes of Israel except for the tribe of Levi, all of them initially received an allotment of land in the promised land of Canaan. And the Levites were assistants to Israel's priests. So they were supported by a tithe offering from the 11 other tribes. So each of those tribes gave 10% of what came to their land to support the Levites. The Levites' job was to support the priests and make sure that worship happened properly. Okay, so all the families of those 11 tribes were to give a tenth of all their produce, their flocks, their cattle, 
to the Levites, and in turn the Levites were to give a tenth of that to support the priests. This is all laid out in the books of Leviticus and Numbers. And tithes were also used to meet the needs of foreigners, orphans, and widows. So this was a, a whole economic and political system. And in addition, everyone was to be generous with those in need. So in Deuteronomy 15, it says, If there is a poor man among your brothers in any of the towns of the land that the Lord your God is giving you, don't be hard-hearted or tight-fisted towards your poor brothers. Rather, be open-handed and freely lend him whatever he needs. So that's the Old Testament. In the New Testament, any references to tithing are just specifically referring back to that Old Testament system. Jesus isn't explicitly against it or for it. He doesn't really say much about it at all. But he does criticise the Pharisees, the Jewish leaders, as hypocrites because they obey the letter of the law but not the spirit of it. So, for example, he says, you are so meticulous about keeping the law that you tithe even the smallest amounts of the spices that you grow in your garden, but at the same time you ignore the larger matters of justice and mercy and faith. That's Jesus' reference to tithing. So it doesn't seem like Jesus is giving that a yes or a no. So we can't argue that that's exactly what the Bible says we should do. However, Jesus does say, you must be generous to those in need. Give to the one who asks you and don't turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you, he says in Matthew 5. Now, Paul in the New Testament often teaches that giving should be cheerful and not out of obligation and not for public recognition. He says, what you give is between you and God. And rather than a certain amount as an obligation, it seems to me that the Bible urges us to just share generally and generously of whatever talents and abilities and wealth God has given us. Romans 12 says we have different gifts according to the graces given us. If a man's gift is prophesying, let him use it in proportion to his faith. If it's serving, let him serve. If it's teaching, let him teach. If it's encouraging, let him encourage. If it's contributing to the needs of others, let him give generously. If it's leadership, let him govern diligently. If it's showing mercy, let him do it cheerfully. That's what the Bible teaches about giving. It doesn't say you've got to give 10%. It says you've got to give generously to what God's doing and to the poor. So in biblical times, Christians typically held their meetings in private homes or in public spaces, which means that they didn't really have significant operating expenses. But churches like us do need money to pay for salaries and rent and mortgage payments and buildings and utilities and supplies and all that stuff. And churches also need loads of volunteers for the many ministries and tasks. And you hear us talking about that all the time. To be part of this church means to get involved. And it means to give your money. And Paul urged Christians diligently, he says, to use your God-given gifts to support the work of your local church. So, if you come here, are you obligated to give to the church? If you feel like this is your home and God has told you that, then I would encourage you to prayerfully ask him. What about if you're having trouble paying your bills, if you're in debt? The answer is, I wouldn't advocate giving large amounts of money away when you're in debt when you owe it to somebody else. But I would suggest, whatever, that you do give something regularly as a matter of principle, even if it's a pound a week. Just out of principle, because that's what God has done for us and because this is about our hearts. And so all of us have to pray and listen to our conscience and consider the needs of ourselves and our families when deciding 
how much to give, Paul says in Timothy. No one should feel pressured to give a certain amount of money or a certain percentage of income to this church or anybody else or any other ministry. So when it comes to the question of how much, it's really hard to argue, as you can see, how much that should be. For me, I use the 10% as a rough guide and a starting point because I think it seems reasonable. And I try very hard to go over and above it in everything I do. I have some friends who decided that their spiritual lives weren't exciting enough. Okay? They just decided that they, you know, they, they, they kind of grown a bit and they, they had some good times. And so they were like, right, how can we spice up our spiritual lives? Right, let's try and give some more money to God. And so they decided that what they were going to do, um, a number of years ago this was, was to increase that amount from 10% by 1% every year. Okay, 11%, 12%, and, third, and, the, and, the, that's, and that's what they're doing, they're working on. And that's a challenge, but every time, I don't have the stories, but I've heard them tell them, every time they start down that road, God meets them and blesses them one way or another. And so in this church, we encourage the Bible's principles on giving, we try and teach them at least once a year, and as you've just heard, we don't force anyone to give. We're not grant funded or government funded, we operate from people's generosity, and we want to be generous with the money that we receive. We try and give away at least 10%, hopefully more, of what we receive. We set budgets, we try and be wise uh, with what we have, and once a year our trustees present the church's finance so that we try and be as open and transparent about this whole area as possible, because the money that you do give to the church does facilitate kingdom ministry. You know, we hold worship services here which anyone can come to, Many do, and meet with Jesus and encounter his power and his love. We help people grow in their faith. We reach out with compassion, and we serve and impact communities. But listen, let me get this, let me get this absolutely straight. We are not desperate for your money. This is not why I'm doing this. We have a generous father who's got our needs covered. I am completely 100% comfortable with that. We talk about money because it's part of healthy discipleship and following Jesus. Does that make sense? Are you with me? And just lastly on this, um, you know, two years ago in September 2016, we put the call out for um, a building project. We said that we felt, honestly, that God had in- invited us to make an investment in our building uh, to make sure that it was bringing help and life as a welcoming community. This is an artist's impression. One or two things have slightly changed, but essentially that's what the front of the church is going to look like. I tweeted some pictures of it this week because if you can get through all the scaffolding, you can just see the beginnings of some of that stuff there. And at the end of June, we are going to open the front door of this building, which is really exciting, isn't it? So we're like nearly two years down the line from that time when we first launched this, um, this vision. Okay, This is more than a physical thing. This is a spiritual event. Our building project has enabled us and will enable us to provide a much better welcome than we could ever do before will be easy to spot. It'll be obvious how you get in. And once people are in, we welcome the reception. The flow around the building is going to be heaps better, especially for children and families on a Sunday. Um, Already our Sunday spaces upstairs for kids are really great. And um, also through Compassion. And I know that Jenny and the Storehouse team are really excited about getting into their new Compassion space. And it means that they can't just open on Thursday mornings. It means they can open every morning if we have the right people. Every morning. Five days a week. Compassion front and centre. Isn't that exciting? Big fish will start again in the cafe. We're thinking about limited external bookings. There is all sorts of stuff that God wants to do. And I really believe that as we open the front door, 
for the first time in a long time, it will result in God's kingdom coming, more people finding their way into church. And that project has been made possible through the generosity of God's people here. And if you're one of those people, thank you and God bless you. Some people gave massive one-off gifts. Some people gave really small one-off gifts. Some people gave regularly and are still giving regularly over and above their monthly donation. And, um, you know, we're going to be... We had a whole chunk of money. I don't have the stats with me, but it's um, somewhere over £150,000 which was given. And then we have a mortgage that uh, we're, we're drawing on and we're about to agree all the terms to repay. But all of that's... Um, all of that's good. And if you, I want to encourage you that if you consider yourself as part of this church in response to this message, I'd love you to take some time just to ask the Lord prayerfully about if there's anything he wants you to do. Maybe to review your own giving. You can pick up one of these forms and it has the details on. If you're a taxpayer, um, then we can claim gift aid back on your money, um, which is even better for us. And if you haven't had a chance to give to our building project and would like to as an ongoing concern, there's a separate form. Okay, get that right. Blue form, blue form with a picture of a building on, separate form, separate form, different account. Okay, but basically, if that's something that you'd like to do, I would love to just encourage you. Maybe you've started coming to this church since the building project started and you're watching it happen and you're thinking, what are they doing? Maybe you don't even remember what it was like before. Okay, um, so you don't really know how much, but if the Lord's talking to you about it, take an opportunity to uh, have a look at that and come speak to me afterwards if you've got any questions. Now, I just want to finish with one example, and it's an example of a pastor, a guy called Rick Warren. You may have heard of him. He wrote a book called The Purpose Driven Life. He's written a number of books, and uh, I'm just going to read to you from an article from 2013 about Pastor Rick Warren. It's an American article. It says, you might wonder how much the pastor of a megachurch with more than 20,000 attendees pockets from the weekly offering basket. Do all those funds translate into homes, cars, personal aircraft, yachts, or even a luxury brand of wristwatch? Not that a pastor, this is the American article, this is not me, not that a pastor shouldn't enjoy a little of the American dream, especially if he's the man who founded Saddleback Church in 1980 and built up his worldwide following one family at a time. The same spiritual leader who has written the second most translated book in the world, second only to the Bible, and one that's been on the New York Times bestseller for nearly four straight years. This, after all, is a man who networks with the leaders of the free world, presidents and presidential hopefuls and assorted dignitaries while helping to combat AIDS through personal relationship with rock stars such as Bono. I like that, he quoted Bono, so that's fine. (laughs) This mighty man of the cloth is Pastor Rick Warren, a man who, in a world seemingly consumed by greed and material possessions, practices what he preaches in defiance of the temptation to feather his own nest, relying instead on scripture and time-tested money management principles to guide his personal and financial life. Quote, I drive a 12-year-old Ford, have lived in the same house for the last 22 years, bought my watch at Walmart, I don't own a boat or a jet, says Warren. In fact, following the success of his book, A Purpose Driven Life, he stopped taking a salary from his church and even gave back the salary he'd earned during the first 25 years with Saddleback. I've been a volunteer pastor for nearly 10 years now, he said. I'm not even a professional anymore, I'm just an amateur. (laughs) 
As shocking as this set of choices and values might be to people who envy wealth and influence, Pastor Rick makes his purpose evident. I want to give it all, I gave it all back because I didn't want anyone to think that I do what I do because of the money. I love Jesus Christ, he says. The Bible teaches we are to love people and use money. But we often get that the wrong way around and start loving money and using people to get more money. Money is just as simply a tool to be used for good. Now, I read a separate article about Warren, um, and he said, he said, I'm aware of the stigma. He said that pastors are in it for the money. He said, but every pastor knows he would serve for free if possible. There are so many easier ways to make money, Warren said in this interview. Believe me, if you want to make money, don't be a pastor. <laughs> so here's the crunch point, the last um, paragraph of that article. I think there's a really important lesson here. Pastor Rick took this important point to heart at an early age. Age 17 age 17, long before a purpose-driven life ever came out, I began living on a 10-10-80 principle. Give the first 10% to God, save the second 10% for your future, and learn to live on the rest. So as a 17-year-old, every week I started putting 50 cents away towards my retirement. And when you do that, you learn to live on a margin, and you can save an enormous amount of money, and therefore I was already financially secure before the book even came out. So as a young man with not much money, this guy had already decided to take the Bible teaching on generosity seriously and to live a lifestyle where he gave the first portion of his money to God. Isn't that incredible? Just like Barnabas that I was telling you about two weeks ago, God already had his heart and was able to trust him to handle the incredible wealth that actually came his way when he wrote a best-selling book. By the way, he now lives on 10% of his income and gives away 90% of it. Isn't that interesting? A bit like the... Uh, I know that's more than... I was just thinking back to that survey I read you at the beginning, the £101 million thing. People who said they would immediately spend £2.4 million on themselves. This guy spends... Gives away 90%, keeps 10% to live on. So no matter how far down the track you think you are, I would encourage all of us to think about doing the same. It's never too late to start cultivating a lifestyle of generosity, no matter who you are or where you are. Why don't we invite the Holy Spirit to come and speak to us about this? Why don't you stand? And why don't we just take a moment to reflect? And why don't we welcome the Holy Spirit to our meeting? He's already here anyway. But there may be things that he wants to do and say. And there may be some of us who feel like he wants to, he's going to challenge us or speak to us today. So Holy Spirit, we welcome you. Come, Holy Spirit. Thank you for your presence here. You're already with us. You've already demonstrated your presence with us and your power to us. And we come before you with this area of our lives. And we invite you in to speak into this area of our lives, into our resources, into our time and our energy, into our finances. I'm just going to wait for a minute and just welcome the Spirit here. Spirit of God, come, we pray.
Spirit of God, we welcome you here. And if you know that God is speaking to you, if something that's been said this morning resonates with you, I just just want to invite you again to just open your heart, perhaps open your hands, and just allow his presence to come as we engage with him. Maybe you've never experienced the generosity of God's love and power. Maybe that's an alien concept to you or something that you can't relate to. And if that's the case, we would love to pray for you. We'd love to pray for God to. We'd love to pray. Maybe you are here and you just need a miracle of some kind. It might be a miracle of physical healing. It might be an emotional issue. It might be a financial issue or a practical issue. You just know that I, I just need something to happen. I need God to intervene. And if that's you, we'd love to pray for you. Going to give you a chance to respond in a couple of moments, and the worship guys are going to lead us in a bit of worship as well. Maybe you just need to encounter God's power and presence today, or maybe it's that you that God is inviting you to make a commitment to generosity. I'm just going to invite you to do something, and it's just a very small symbolic thing, and there's no pressure to do it. But for some people, I felt like. God was just wanting to say that he is inviting us to unclench our fists. For some of us, maybe it feels like we're just holding on to our stuff. And God is inviting us to let go. And if that's you, if you feel like that resonates with you, then maybe just very simply, and it doesn't have to be in view of anybody else, just with your hands down by your side. But maybe what you want to do is just to literally unclench your fists maybe just to let go as a way of showing God that I'm ready to let go and the second we're going to pray and we are also don't forget going to pray for our Romanian team in a couple of moments too but just as I look around I can sense that God's presence is resting on a number of people When Nigel was saying that um, that little phrase at the end, that sometimes we, you know, we need to love people and use money, that people, there's a couple of people here that have felt the the inverse, that they have been, um, they have been marginalised because there have been people who loved money and used them, and maybe it has to do in a church context, or maybe it's just a life context, but if. If, um, if that's you, then, then we'd love to pray for you this morning as well. Mm. And so if, God, if you know that God is talking to you and you need to get free of that and you need some help, we'd love to pray. So I'm just going to invite you to come forward, if that's you. I'm going to invite you, if you want to respond to what God's doing, just to come and stand in this space. And, uh, and there are people from the church who would love to pray for you. In fact, can I have one or two people from the church as well to come? Why don't you just do that if you're ready and if that's what you know God wants you to do. We would love to pray for you. And we would love to just invite his Holy Spirit to come and intervene in whatever situation you find yourself in. Be it emotional or financial or spiritual. Bless you guys.
This is a safe place. Nobody is going to be asking you loads of detailed information or anything like that. Why don't you just come if you want to meet with God this morning and you need to receive from him. If you need to just know that he loves you, the generosity of his love, then why don't you come forward? Bless you. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to pray for these folks. The guys are going to play. Um, if you've got kids, I'll pray in a second and then maybe you can go and get them. And then in about five minutes, I'm going to invite that Romanian team just to come. But if you're here now and you're, you're there, we can make a start on that now. But let's encourage people to... Uh... So if you're part of that team that's going to Romania and you want to come, there's plenty of space in the middle. And why don't some people come and gather around them as well? Just the two of you then. (laughs) Come on, let's have some people. So, Holy Spirit, we thank you for your presence here. We thank you that you're here. We thank you for your voice speaking to us, your words of truth and life, challenge and encouragement. Lord, as we go from here, may we hear very clearly how you're calling us to respond. Lord, may we respond to your generosity in ways that make you just thrilled in ways that just thrill you and may we be part of this adventure kingdom adventure together with you speak to us we pray and uh, go with us Father we lift this team up to you we're going to pray for these guys for a little while but we just we bless them as they go to Romania to just again demonstrate your generous heart and to give away of themselves of love of kindness of support and encouragement to people who are really in need spiritually and materially poor pray you bless them on their trip as well and we bless you in Jesus name Amen so if you want to stay and worship the guys will do that there is coffee and tea available don't forget we're meeting here at 6.30 tonight don't forget next week as well we'll be back next week next Sunday morning and in the evening next week we have Brian Dirksen with us it'll be a wonderful night a special special night of worship and if you still want to respond to what God's doing if you don't feel like you're done or you just want a bit of peace just take that take your time if you need to get your kids please do go and get your kids and do thank and Encourage the people who've been working with them. Bless you guys. Have a great day.